This is the day that I think Isaiah foresaw in Isaiah 5.20, where he said, Woe to those who say that darkness is light and light is darkness, that sweet is sour and sour is sweet. Not everyone is singing our song. Not everyone is praising the name of the Lord and exalting Him together with all heart. In fact, there are some, a, I think a small number, but increasing day by day, who are actually in terrible opposition to it. There are some who actually say that for us to raise our children in church should be considered child abuse. There are some who say that the death of Jesus Christ for sins is divine child abuse. There are some that say that the evils found in the New Testament surpass those found in the Old. Michael Weiskopf wrote, Evangelicals are largely poor, uneducated, and easy to command. There is growing and loud opposition in the centers of power to what you and I are doing here today and where our hearts are set. Now, be real careful of accusing the ordinary person of thinking that way. I don't really believe that is the standard ordinary person, though there are more joining to that number every day. I'm talking about the centers of power in the United States and in Europe, universities, the media, entertainers, those that um, are involved in, uh, some who are involved in the legal class, though not all, and others that are in the centers of power. I, I will tell you that is a very small group, but it's well-funded. It has control of the keyboards and the microphones. In fact, I think oftentimes the croaker principle is operative here. Uh, the common name for the croaker, by the way, is the bullfrog. I don't know if you've been out around a pond, a country pond at night, listening to bullfrogs sing, but two of them can sound like a thousand. And that's what we do have. But in the United States, it's not just the number of people that we have to concern ourselves. It's the influence. Uh, it, it takes only one case before the Supreme Court to radically change the direction of our nation. Just one. And so you not only count the people in opposition, you weigh them. Not literally. But you weigh their influence and their power and their financing. And I've got to say to you, I anticipate, unless God sends revival, an increasingly difficult day ahead for, for us. We've got to be prepared, and I'd like to do that. Now, up to this point, we have looked uh, together over the last several weeks at the titles of Christ. We've looked at His ministry. We've looked at the events leading up to His death. We've looked at His death. We've looked at His mighty resurrection. Next Sunday, we'll look at His second coming. Not to be confused with the resurrection, but we will look at His second coming and, but this morning, I want to ask, what in the world has, been, has Jesus been doing for 2,000 years? Theologians say that in this point, in this time in history, Jesus Christ is in session. That means he's on his throne and he's ruling. We talk about a court being in session. We talk about the Congress or the state legislature being in session. Jesus Christ is in session. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ is doing in this day. In Acts chapter 26, what we find here is that we find Paul defending himself, much like we will have to defend ourselves. Paul has been moved to another prison in Caesarea Philippi, and Herod Agrippa wants to hear from him. And in Acts chapter 26, Paul defends the legitimacy of the faith. Now, he's speaking to the government. And I want to ask you, if you had the opportunity to speak to your government, what would you say? 
Now, don't get any ideas. I don't want you to shout anything and have to confess at the altar when we're done, okay? But when Paul has the opportunity to communicate to the most powerful people in the world, he says, Jesus saves and calls you to repent. Paul knew something that many don't know, and that is the solution to our world's problems is for more and more to meet Jesus Christ. And because, well, a few of us think so at least, uh, because when someone comes to Jesus Christ as Savior, they meet a Lord and Master who surpasses all others. And that is what Jesus Christ has been doing for 2,000 years. Jesus has been demonstrating, Jesus has been demonstrating His superior rule over all. He surpasses all masters in every conceivable category of thought. Now, before I read this text, I want to tell you the story of Christ's rule. I want to back up for just a moment and begin with Genesis chapter 1 and follow the logical development of the rule of Jesus Christ. Uh, in Genesis 1, we find that God entrusted the world to Adam and Eve and gave them dominion or rule over the world. They were to serve as his co-rulers or his vice rulers and regents, and he gave them dominion over the earth and to cover up the earth with the knowledge of God and the rule of God. They relinquished this in Genesis chapter 3 to Satan. And with the fall, Satan became the legitimate and legal ruler of the earth. The Bible, in fact, says uh, in John 14, 30, John 16, 11, Ephesians 2, 2, uh, and a, a variety of other texts, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the ruler of this age. He is the prince of the power of the air. And so legally, Adam and Eve relinquished rule of the world to Lucifer, who had fallen. Well, at the cross in Genesis, um, that's scene two, we're now at scene three. In Genesis, uh, John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus ejected Satan from the throne of the earth and took possession of it and disarmed principalities and powers. Then in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he ascended to heaven and began a slow incremental rule over hearts and lives. Very strategic, not careless. Not reckless, but instead a slow incremental rule. In other words, Jesus legally purchased the earth when he died on the cross. He went to heaven's court and purchased the earth with his blood. Then he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And since that time, he has been waiting to take possession of the earth. Well, that's what you did with your home. You signed papers and waited for a while to take possession of it. That's what Jesus Christ has been doing. And so he has been waiting ever since then for the right time to come to take possession of the earth. We find ourselves now in, uh, in scene four. Scene five, the father is progressively bringing all under the feet of Christ and increasing his rule. Psalms 110 verse 1 is the most often quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New. It's quoted more often than any other Old Testament verse. And it says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now can you imagine a king resting his feet on the heads and shoulders and backs of other kings? What does that imply to you? Conquer, dominion, rule, reign, superiority. And the Father is progressively taking the enemies of the earth against Christ 
and bringing them under the foot of Jesus Christ. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and slowly, incrementally, the Father is accomplishing this. Isaiah 9, 6, He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of His government, there shall, and increase of His government, there shall be no end. And that is precisely what the Father is doing now in scene 5. In scene 6, what we are doing is that we are entering the world and spreading the kingdom of God by representing Him as Christians and churches. We enter the world with spiritual weapons, love, prayer, evangelism, the gospel, demonstrating the life of Christ. And we're bringing traitors under the rule of Christ while time remains. Now, I'm not included in here, but there's a scene 7. Or actually, I have. Scene 7 One day, the right time will arrive, and Jesus Christ will split the eastern sky. He will return. We won't meet him in the air. We've already done that. Instead, he will come and plant himself on the earth and take possession of what he has owned all these centuries. And then the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever. He will eliminate all that's dark and miserable, exalt and make permanent and establish all that is righteous and true and pleasurable to the children of men and to his own heart. That is precisely what he'll do, and that's our subject next week. That's where we are with the rule of Christ. We are in this time when Jesus is progressively seeking to cover the earth through evangelism and Bible teaching and the ministry of the church, bringing people to himself before he comes back in judgment and fierce glory. Now, Paul is an example of what Jesus is doing today. He's defending himself. He tells his testimony about how he was hostile towards the gospel. And he begins in verse 12 saying, as he was journeying to Damascus to capture more Christians and to sentence them to death, He said, while thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and those in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do the works befitting repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses would say, would come. That the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he made his defense, 
Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I pray to God that not only you, but also those who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Beatrice, and those who, or Bernice, and those who sat with him. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing, deserving death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he not appealed to Caesar. Paul is a marvelous emblem of what God is doing in the world today by the rule of Jesus Christ in lives. And the main point I want to make to you this morning is there is no one who rules a life like Jesus. In fact, I would go so far as to say to you, even if there were no heaven or hell, I would still choose to follow Jesus Christ in this day. If the grave were it and there's no consciousness, there's no existence after the grave, let's imagine. In this life, I would still choose to follow Jesus because there's no one like him. No one rules like Jesus. And when Jesus gets a hold of a life, a culture, a society, he does marvelous and glorious things in it. One thing that he does is this. When Jesus rules, he educates the masses. Some accuse us of being backwoods, uneducated, easy to command. And there may be some like that. But in Acts 26, verse 1, 18 and 23, Paul indicated marvelous, marvelous uh, level of personal education. In verse 1, he waved his hand before the crowd before he spoke. You could read over that very quickly, but the truth is in verse 1, when he waved his hand, that was a rhetorical device that trained speakers would use to quiet a crowd and get their attention and let them know that something important is coming. Well, Christians have excelled in those areas. Then in verse number 18, Jesus said, through your ministry, you will open their eyes. Christians have done that for centuries through education. And because Christ is crucified and buried, in verse 23, Paul said that even today, Jesus is proclaiming light in the world. And he does that through his church. From the very beginning, the Christian faith has been a faith that educates the masses that educates the people. In fact, where secularism rises, education falls. It's only where Jesus rules that it makes progress and improves and does what it's designed to do. Christians were the first, by the way, in history to teach both sexes in the same setting. And they did it for baptism preparation. In the United States, 122 of the first 123 universities were founded to train ministers and Christians for the glory of God to proclaim the gospel and to educate the mind for the glory of God. Christians were the first to educate all people without regard for class or ethnicity. The first. They established the first universities, depending on how you define it. If you define a university as an institution with professors and a library and graduation, then Christians were the first to establish universities. 
The Greeks did some higher education without those three things, but the modern university was first founded by Christian people in Bologna, Italy, uh, back in the 6th century. The first public schools with compulsory attendance were the brainchild of the Christian reformer Martin Luther. Missionaries have been responsible for taking education to the third world. No one else is doing that kind of thing, at least with the history and the vigor and the soul of the Christian people. Jesus Christ is in session, and when he's in session, he educates the masses. Of course, that makes an awful lot of sense, doesn't it? You've got to be educated to do what? To read the Bible. And so there has been great eternal, theological, spiritual, and biblical motivation to open their eyes and to educate the masses. But that, that's not all. When Jesus rules, he lifts society. There are many people today that are using the word hypocrite too often. They really are. Do you know what a hypocrite is? Well, a hypocrite is not a Christian who struggles with holiness. That's not a hypocrite. If the person is humble and acknowledges his or her weaknesses, that's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not a new Christian who is struggling, not an old Christian that's still struggling. A hypocrite is someone who intentionally gives you the impression he or she is not what he or she really is. And so a non-Christian pretending to be a Christian, consciously and intentionally, would be a hypocrite. A Christian pretending to be a non-Christian intentionally and on purpose and purposefully, would be a hypocrite. A hypocrite is not someone who struggles. And so that word has become um, rather tired and old and worn out in so many ways. It does need to be recovered because that can be a problem. But in Acts chapter 26, the Bible teaches when Jesus gets a hold of a life, he does something different with that life. He opens their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. When Jesus gets a hold of a life, he transforms a life and therefore society from darkness into light. Christians, in fact, are responsible for the abolition of slavery in the United States and gladiatorial combat in the Roman Empire. They were responsible for, uh, for, uh, for uh, banishing uh, or, or making illegal the exposure of children. Many families in the first century and uh, the few after that were... Um, uh, very guilty oftentimes and had no qualms about delivering a child into the world and abandoning that child if the child did not please them. They did that especially with girls. Christians saw that, were horrified, and so therefore started the first orphanages in human history. Not only that, but Christians have been on the forefront of freedom and dignity for women. No one else was doing that when they were doing it. They established the first hospitals. In fact, the notion of compassion entered into the world's vocabulary because of the example of Jesus that Christians carried into the world. Folks, the other religions really don't teach it. Judaism teaches compassion among Jews, but really not beyond that. Buddhists don't teach compassion at all. They teach a lack of feeling, so compassion is antithetical to Buddhism. Hinduism has a caste system, and you leave people that are suffering alone because that's their fate, that's their caste. Uh, Islam has a little bit of compassion that really does not circle the globe. It is given out only in small measures to other Muslims. Jesus said to be compassionate towards all and even love your enemies, and that was revolutionary and new when he stated it. Jesus is responsible for the notion of compassion. That's done marvelous work in the world, even in our world today. As a pastor through the years, I've had to help uh, 
several young men get past their drug addiction. And I've helped get them into a great Christian ministry called Teen Challenge. It's not perfect, but uh, it's about the most effective that there is. Uh, In the days when I was doing that, we found that most secular programs had at best a 15% success rate after five years of keeping people off of drugs. Teen Challenge, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga has found, has a success rate of 68% after seven years. Secular standards will allow you to use alcohol, tobacco, drink a bottle of wine a week or a six-pack of beer a week and still smoke cigarettes or tobacco. The teen challenge standard is much higher, however. When they say 68% success rate after seven years, not only does that not mean, not only does that mean no illegal drugs, that also means no tobacco at all, no alcohol at all, nothing at all, no stimulants whatsoever. 68% and they don't charge your insurance company a dime, it's entirely free. Beloved, when Jesus Christ gets a hold of a life, he changes it remarkably and does a marvelous work. I will tell you that if you're fond of following this world and its criticism of Christian people, you're probably behind the times, not ahead. Let me explain to you what I mean. Back in the 50s, Christians began to warn the nation about the dangers of smoking. The Surgeon General began to complain, I believe, in the early 60s. But it really did not pick up steam and momentum until the 90s. Finally, the world caught up with what we were saying 40 years before. In the 60s, we began to complain about the quality of public education. Well, people called us fuddy-duddies and narrow. But finally, sometime in the late 80s and early 90s, they began to listen to us. We began to complain in the 70s about the effect of divorce upon children. And finally, after a couple of decades, they caught up with us on that. What I want to say to you is that usually when God wants to make a great change in society and get people's change, He tells the church first. And they lead on the bleeding edge and risk misunderstanding, ridicule, name-calling, and a variety of other difficulties that make this chore very difficult. But still, we've got to be faithful no matter what they say. When God gives us discernment and insight from His Word about present conditions, let's stand on it. And let me ask you this question. Can you think of any pressing, current, cultural issues we're dealing with now where the world disagrees with us? Hold on. Hold on and be faithful unto death if necessary. And I'll promise you, I will be. When Jesus rules, he lifts society. He inspires education. Then third, when Jesus rules, he creates givers. That's what Christ does. In verse 18, there's a great theological basis for giving. By coming to Christ, they receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In other words, there is an inheritance on the other side when we meet God face to face, following our death or his resurrection and his return. In other words, we've got much to look forward to when we know Jesus Christ is Savior and all that we own and possess on this earth really belongs to God and it's going to be done away with. I have done more than a hundred funerals as a pastor and never once have I seen a hearse carrying a U-Haul trailer to the cemetery with it. 
They buried King Tut with all of his wealth and his gifts and all. And apparently the volume's up, so you'll listen. But... <laughs> They buried King Tut with all of his wealth and all of his, all of his possessions, his royalty, his gold, his silver, his jewels, and they're still in the tomb where he was first buried. You can't take it with you. We know that, we believe that, and so we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. What a great motivation and inspiration to give. What we give, we couldn't keep anyway. And so we send it on by sending it to the mission field, sending it to church ministry in order to reach people for Jesus Christ who will endure forever and live forever. Ladies and gentlemen, that does remarkable things to a heart and soul when it comes to inspiring giving. In fact, the United Way was established by Christians at the end of the 19th century in Denver, Colorado in about 1887. I don't agree with everything every United Way supports all over uh, the nation, but the truth is, that's not surprising at all. That's what they'll do. Now, one thing you've got to understand, the reason there is so much giving in the Christian church, in fact, more than any secular enclave anywhere in the nation or the world, is because we win people to Jesus, and when Jesus comes into a life, he begins to conform them to his image, and they, in turn, want to give. And we keep winning, and we keep bringing them to the Lord. And so those among us who die or defect and go on, we are able to replace because we bring them to Jesus. Evangelism and missions is profoundly necessary to continue this flood and flow of people who give in the name of Jesus to human need. And that's why conservatives do more giving than liberals ever thought of doing. We've covered that before. I won't say much more about it. But I will uh, quote to you George Grant who uh, wrote a uh, work uh, about uh, Columbus, and he said, As missionaries circled the globe after the time of Columbus, they established hospitals, they founded orphanages, they started rescue missions, they built almshouses, they opened soup kitchens, they incorporated charitable societies, they changed laws, they demonstrated love, they lived as if people mattered. And those made in the image of God matter to God. Amen. Therefore, we give and we help and serve in a time of need. So when Jesus rules, he creates givers. Then, when Jesus rules, he changes lives. And verse 18, they're delivered from the power of Satan to God. They receive forgiveness, so they're connected with God and his grace and his power. And then... After trying Paul and using all the tools of Roman jurisprudence at their disposal, look what they said about Paul in uh, verse number 31. This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Another word for prison. And then Agrippa said, this man might have been set free. That's what Jesus Christ does in a life. That's led the atheist... Matthew Parents, who grew up in uh, Africa, to write an article at Richard Dawkins' blog site entitled, As an Atheist, I Believe Africa Needs God. He returned and noticed differences between the Christian Africans and those that were not. And he said, I used to think as an atheist that... The faith was okay if it motivated missionaries to do good work, but it wasn't true. He said, I can hold that position no longer. 
When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, something actually happens in the heart and the soul. More than motivation. Transformation takes place, he said. And he said, that makes me very uncomfortable with my atheism. Well, I'm glad he's got the honesty to admit it. I remember sitting in a ministerial conference in the first town where I pastored in South Carolina. And the mayor who was attending my church came to us and said, I'm brokenhearted, I have to tell you. We've got a growing drug problem here in the city, in the county, and it's getting worse, and it doesn't matter what I do, I can't combat it. I'm begging you, help me. What can we do? So I told the fellas, I said, well, my church is open, let's have a prayer meeting about it. That's all we did is that we had a prayer meeting about it. We gathered together all the pastors and church members who would come and had a prayer meeting at the First Baptist Church in King Street. I'd like to say the walls were packed and the balcony was filled, but it was not. There really weren't many who showed up. I think maybe, my memory, if it serves me well, about 25. But we laid hold of God and we pleaded with him to solve the problem and we're making ourselves available to follow him and to involve ourselves as he wished. Now this was a small town in a small county. It was exceptionally poor. At one time back in the 60s, the third poorest county in the United States. We did not have the financial resources for the law enforcement that we needed for the problem. So we couldn't look there. I thank God for law enforcement, but there in that location, we were overwhelmed. We weren't far off of I-95, which apparently is the main drug corridor from Miami up to New York. So we pleaded with God to do a great work there. Well, I honestly forgot all about it and went on and tried to keep doing my work. At the meantime, one of our lay youth workers was meeting with three teenage girls in our youth group who were brokenhearted over kids in the community. Nearly all of our kids in our church went to an academy there in town. And that left essentially folks that could not afford an academy to go to the public schools there. They got a burden for all the kids in the community, in their high school, in the public schools, other places in the community. And Eddie told them, he said, okay, I'll give my all to reaching all of these kids, but there can't be any boundaries. There can't be any boundaries of race. There cannot be any boundaries of class, both of which were significant boundaries in that county, at least outside our church, not inside. And Eddie said, no boundaries. They said, okay. And we began to pray. They began to pray. He began to host youth meetings at his home on Sunday nights after church. And they began to seek God. Well, all of a sudden, these three boys from the local public high school showed up. These three girls had caught their eye. And they admitted later, we didn't come for the best of motives. They were cute, so we came and you, you all had food. 
And what they would simply do is that they would gather in Eddie's living room, sing a song, pray, share testimony, and Eddie would share something from the scripture. It was the simplest thing you ever thought had ever happened. Well, one of them filled out a guest card. So one of these girls, Daddy and I, one of my deacons, went by to visit Ron. And we talked with Ron and shared the gospel with Ron. And on the doorstep of his mobile home, Ron got saved and gave his heart to Jesus. And I don't know who was more excited, Ron or this deacon. This deacon had never seen anything like that. But right before his eyes, some of his aspirations and dreams were coming true. Someone was coming to the Lord in his presence, and he had a part in it. So Ron came to the Lord. I baptized him, and I didn't see it, but Eddie told me, when I brought Ron up, Ron was beams and smiles. Well, Jeff got under conviction, and eventually Michael got under conviction. And they both came to the Lord, and then they began to pour out their story. All three of these boys had an unstable family. And there were an awful lot of gross things that took place in their homes. They had no hope for the future. They were struggling in school. They were dabbling in the occult and Satanism. They were sacrificing animals. Jeff, in fact, was a member of a drug gang there in the county, centered in the high school. Well, Jeff began to grow. He began to walk with God, as did Ron and Michael eventually. And Jeff became bothered with what was on his conscience. And so he went to Eddie and spoke to Eddie and shared with Eddie all that he had done in the drug trade in the county. Eddie called one of my deacons who was a state senator and said, hey, I've got to meet with you. And so they met in a hotel room in another city, in another county. And Jeff unfolded his story and said, the sheriff here in town is supplying me with drugs. I get in his car and we swap identical backpacks. And I sell. And I give him some of the proceeds. Yancey ended up sending an investigative team into the county and within six months they had a case against the entire sheriff's department and ladies and gentlemen, the drug trade dropped there in that county. It's a relentless thing. It's something you, that takes constant maintenance. But what I've got to say to you is, we didn't have any federal money. We didn't have any state money. Thank God if you've got that available to you. We didn't have anything available to us but the opportunity to pray and seek the God of heaven and share the name of Jesus in a community without boundaries. And God saved somebody and brought it down is what he did. That is the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Jesus can solve any problem. The tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing he cannot do. And he does it every time someone repents and believes the gospel. Now this surfaces a few questions. Number one, are you saying that Christians are superior? Well, of course not. If you've listened to me today or any length of time, you have heard that I constantly declare our guilt and our need to repent and believe the gospel or we can never be made right with God. And I want you to understand, any good that we have ever achieved as a people, as a Christian people, 
from Jesus' ascension into the present day is only due to his presence in our lives and his ability, his sovereignty, his lordship, and his uh, opportunity to live that through us. Any good that Christians have ever accomplished, ladies and gentlemen, is the credit for that is due only to his name. He alone gets the glory and the credit. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that we haven't done some good things, but I've got to give credit to Jesus. If, if, if it were not for Jesus in our lives and his salvation, there wouldn't be the heart and the motivation and the resources and the internal stuff necessary to do this in the world. So no, Christians are not superior, but Jesus Christ is superior. That's what I'm saying. But a second question. What about hypocritical Christians? And I want you to hear what I'm saying, and I'm entirely sincere. What about hypocritical Christians? And biblically, I've got to tell you the truth, you don't know any. No, you don't. No, you don't. You cannot be a hypocritical Christian. You can no more be a hypocritical Christian than a satanic Christian. You can no more be a hypocritical Christian than you can be an apple tree Christian. You can no more be a hypocritical Christian than a human can be a fish. I traveled by the University of Florida one day and kind of wondered, but the truth is, that's not, that's not it at all. You can't. The notion of hypocrisy is thoroughly excluded from the notion of Christianity. Genuine Christians do not engage in hypocrisy. Once in a while, we may struggle. Once in a while, we may. But the Bible teaches progressive and growth, uh, progressive growth in integrity and transparency. Well, what about these Christians I know who are hypocrites? Friend, I just need to tell you, I, I'm not a judge, and neither are you, by the way. I need to chase a rabbit. It's big, fat, and slow so we can get it. But have you ever noticed that when people talk about being judgmental, they have to get pretty judgmental themselves first? I'm kind of sick of it, aren't you? Why don't we just be honest? I think that would be a whole lot better. But let me, let me tell you what, what I'm saying here. When you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, you don't necessarily have to buy it. A Christian is someone who has invited Christ into his or her life by repentance and faith in the gospel, and Christ has come in and begun to transform that life. And without that transformation of life, there is no Christianity. Now, here's what you do know. You know probably some naive people who don't know any better, who claim to be Christian, who fake it, one way or the other, who made a false profession of faith when they were younger, or they are indeed faking it. But when Jesus Christ comes into a life, he excludes hypocrisy as a pattern of life. Again, there might be moments here and there, but as a pattern of life, that is not a possibility according to the Word of God. Now, some of you are looking at me like I have a snake on my head or in my pocket. Read First John. Read it every day for the rest of the week, and I think that that will help you greatly. So I just need to tell you, I'm sorry that you've run into people who claim to know Christ who live hypocritically. But you need to know the hypocrisy tells on them and immediately excludes them from uh, 
a serious claim of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Again, I'm not a judge, and so I don't want to talk about any person personally. But if that is the pattern of their life, more than a moment in time, but if that is the pattern of their life, that excludes them and reveals and betrays the real status of their heart. We are what we do, not what we claim. And I need to tell you, and please hear me, If you're not loving and living the will of God, you have no reason to believe that you're a Christian or saved. None. Let that alarm your soul. The third question. So why is there so much evil and suffering in the world if Jesus is ruling? Why is there so much suffering? Has God failed to take care of His world? Has Jesus Christ been negligent? Well, remember what I said earlier in the message. The problem is not that Jesus has failed to care for his world. It's that Satan has failed to care for it himself. Legally, rule of the world was transferred to Satan with the fall. Jesus repurchased it, but he's not taken possession of it yet. And so Satan engages in fish behavior. Let me explain. Yesterday, Luke and I went fishing, and he used a jig and caught a bass as long as this pew. (laughs) Of course, that's as truthful as some of your fish stories, but that thing was huge. It, It weighed at least two pounds, and I'm underestimating it on purpose. When we pulled it up, I mean, I had to go over and land it myself. I mean, he couldn't, the, the nine-year-old that he is, big, handsome, strong like his daddy as he is, he couldn't get it up on, uh, he couldn't land it. So I went over and helped him. And when that fish landed on the shore, you know what he did? He spread his fins in defense and began to flop and began to thrash. Why? I think instinctively fish know that the end is near. Now he didn't know we were going to release him back into the water, so we just had fun watching him suffer for a moment. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's what he did. He sensed his end was near, and so he began to thrash wildly about. Uh, Luke uh, caught also maybe a half dozen brim yesterday, and he has to remove them. I don't do it any longer. And he got stuck by one because one extended its fins in defense, and Luke got stabbed. Uh, Not too bad, but he got stabbed. They sense their end is near, and so they go into defense mode. That's what Satan is doing in this life, in this age. So it is not that God has failed to take care of his world, it's that Satan has failed to take care of his world. In fact, he intentionally and strategically seeks to create mischief, mishap, suffering, and difficulty the world through. That's not to say all your problems are inspired by the devil, don't misunderstand me, but that is in large part why there is so much suffering. And the large sufferings that you have read of historically and are aware of currently, I believe probably are directly attributed attributable to satanic influence. And when I think about that, I think about the butchers that have ruled Iraq like Saddam Hussein. 
I think about the Hitlers and others that create mass chaos and mass difficulty and create a stumbling block for the faith. I think that these are questions that are important and serious, but I believe Jesus Christ has adequate answers for every one of them. But there's another reason why they're suffering in the world. There is a reason why Jesus Christ does not come back immediately and eliminate all pain and misery and suffering and establish his peace. There is a immediate reason why he is waiting. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter anticipated people would scoff at the return of the Lord. And he said in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason Jesus has not returned yet is he's waiting for you to come to him. And he's waiting for many others throughout the earth. And let me put it to you this way as a question. If Jesus were to eliminate all evil this evening at 11 p.m., where would you, your family, and those that you love and know be at midnight? (coughs) When we talk about evil, we're not talking about a low base level that's easy to determine like some of the butchers that rule nations as dictators. We're talking about all evil, even lust, even anger, unbridled outbursts of wrath. Jesus Christ is going to so cleanse this polluted earth, He's going to reach even into the soul and the heart. That's the extent to which He will cleanse everything. And if He were to come back and eliminate evil right now, How many people would he have to eliminate and consign to an eternity perishing with the devil and his angels for all eternity? How many would he have to eliminate? The reason he is waiting for that day and delaying it at this point is that he is merciful. He has a merciful patience is what he has. So Jesus Christ is Lord and he rules. And because he rules then, he defines our condition. We don't rebel against him if we do. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Scripture in 1 Samuel 15, 22 defines rebellion and our sin on par with, with, with witchcraft and idolatry. We're guilty before God. So he defines our condition before him. But... The truth is, he also defines our response. Paul talked about those who are sanctified, set apart for the kingdom by faith in me. And then the Lord is slow in returning because he desires all to come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. That's you. And he's calling you to repent. Come back to your king. Turn away and place faith in him. I've had to do something similar or analogous to that recently. I had a little problem with my vehicle I delayed on. And of course, that problem got better, didn't it? No, it got worse. And so I changed my mind and took it to a mechanic and had it repaired this past week. Cost a lot less than what I expected, about one-fifth. 
But I changed, noticed a problem, changed my mind, and took it to someone who could repair it. And when I delivered my car to the mechanic, I relinquished control and trusted him. And that's what Jesus is calling you to do. Recognize your problem. Change your mind about it and the solution. And then relinquish yourself to Jesus Christ in faith to him and him alone. And he's calling you to do that today. And I have to say to you, without any reservation, without any hesitation, without any embarrassment, without any mental hiccup, I commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is worthy of your trust today. Father, we want to pray that friends would think today of Jesus precisely what you think. And I pray that our affections would be set upon Him just like heaven's are. Help us to make whatever change is necessary today to say yes to Him and to bow it all before Him in this time. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. Our staff will be here in front. And as we sing, I want to ask you to step out from where you are and come meet a staff member and ask Him to help you take care of your spiritual need. Some of you need to turn to the Lord. You come and bow to the faith and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Others of you, God's calling you to become part of this church, to move your letter and your life to this place. You come. Others of you, God's moving on your heart to make a change, a rededication, to surrender to ministry or missionary service. You come and give it all to Him. But as we do that, I'm going to ask you to stand real quickly. I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come. Father, would you do a neat work in hearts and lives now and honor Jesus among us that He may be trusted, that He may save, that he may reign as Lord over all in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.